From 1976 to 2016, this podcast has been 40 years in the making. Join us now for a very special episode of The Barstool Historian. everybody welcome back to the barstool historian podcast broadcasting from new york new york and geneva illinois the sodom and gomorrah of the modern times i'm john sitting in the lion's arms tavern with me in the new york end of the t- of the pub is timothy hello tim hello sir and on the other end of the bar the illinois side is ed hello ed ahoy hoy <laughs> Well, that's a good good call back to the uh, Alexander Graham Bell episode. I think <laughs> Alexander Graham Bell was the one who who thought we should be answering the telephones with "Ahoy" uh, rather than "Hello." But and he also he also uh, killed courage, as I recall. He did he kill destroyed courage. Courage. Uh, well, anyway, it's been several months uh, since our last episode. Uh, we took a little break while we dealt with some uh, pretty big life changes. So. Believe it or not, over the past few months, we have, well, one of us, anyway, has had his fifth child. Two of us have gone through some major career changes. And uh, so, yeah, we haven't been recording in a while, but we're starting a new year. You might, might as well just call this the season two of Barstool Historian. And as coincidence would have it, we are all turning 40 this month, January 2016. So this has sort of put us in a celebratory mood, somewhat contemplative mood, as we think back in the past 40 years, and the significance of the number 40 throughout world history. So that is our theme today, the number 40. But before we jump into it, I want to ask you guys, uh, what beverage is in front of you right now? Tim? Ah, my my standard go-to, which is Lagavulin 16, <laughs> I thought, thought it would be good to kick off the season with this uh, robust, very smoky, peaty, wonderful uh, scotch that um, I simply love. It has notes of tobacco and uh, some might say seaweed, which sounds <laughs> odd, but the combination uh, of... of, of, of of those notes and the smokiness make it my absolute favorite. I highly recommend it to those who, who are, are single malt aficionados. Well, cheers. <laughs> cheers. Well, anyway, Ed, what's in what's in your uh, glass right now? Uh, right at the second, I have Samuel Adams Scotch Ale, which, uh, as it happens, and we didn't plan this, actually is uh, brewed uh, using uh, peat smoked. Malt, the same kind they use in Scotch, so it, and it you can you can taste it. It tastes pretty peaty, uh, <laughs> for sure. So I got that, and I got a nice Goose Island Winter Ale, which is a nice brown ale uh, to back it up. A Chica- local Chicago favorite. Um, Indeed. Well, I've gone local as well. Um, I have uh, Brooklyn Breweries. Brooklyn Defender IPA, and um, I was a little skeptical about this one because uh, on the label it says it's the official beer of the New York Comic Con. And oh no! <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, a that's a market quality. So it has zero percent alcohol. 
<laughs> What's that? Yeah, zero percent alcohol. Six point seven. Um, Which I think. So, is, how, so how many tentacles are in that? Well, I don't know how many tentacles will I have when I'm done drinking it is a different story. But, but the label has a picture of a um, a superhero with uh, what looked like Air Jordans and basketball nice. shorts. So I was nice. a little skeptical about this one, but it actually is 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 pretty nice. It's a pretty um, very very malty. Very uh, bitter IPA, but uh, yeah, it's not bad. It's another 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 solid Brooklyn brewery beer. Now, uh, how how did you wind up uh, scoring that? I, I I heard that the only way to get that beer is to have your parents buy it for you. <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're gonna find out the hard way after this that our uh, demographic perfectly overlaps uh, Brooklyn Comic Con. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. What? Worst episode ever. Worst episode. Oh God, you stole it. I was about to say that. Unsubscribe. Cause <laughs> I'm forty now, and I'm a man, but I can't resist the urge to put dreams. In my plan, so many hopeless dreams, and I broke some vows. Maybe life begins for me. I'm 40 now. Well, I'm 40 now. So, Tim, you've been doing some research into the number 40 throughout history. Tell me, why is the number 40 so special? First of all, the number 40 and how it's spelled is confounding and annoying. So let's, let's start with that, because the archaic form of 40 uh, retained the U, and somewhere along the line, it lost the U. So the spelling is not in keeping with the number four, and that is odd. And for those of us who bemoan the the fact that spell check uh, <laughs> highlights words like honor when you put a U in it as incorrect, um, well, that uh, that makes us uh, very upset. Those who hearken back back into the decades of history and cherish the English language as it should have been written and spoken. So, I just want to first criticize the number 40 uh, right off the bat. <laughs> 40 is actually a, an auspicious and mysterious number. 40 has tremendous significance, uh, particularly in world religions. Astronomically, 40 is significant because the planet Venus forms a pentagram in the night sky eight, uh, every eight years, uh, with it returning to its original point every 40 years with a 40-day regression. And some believe that this is why 40 has come to be very significant among the major religions. So uh, just taking a few, uh, Christianity, Jesus wandered in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, uh, being tempted by the devil to renounce his heavenly crown uh, for kingdom, uh, a material kingdom of riches on earth. He was 
he ascended into heaven 40 days after the resurrection. If you look at Judaism uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrews wandered in the Sinai Desert for 40 days and 40 nights. Noah endured 40 days and 40 nights of rain. In Islam, Muhammad was 40 years old when he received his first revelation from the archangel of Gabriel. In Hinduism, many prayers are divided into 40 stanzas and popular fasting periods are 40 days in length. That's one important aspect of uh, the number 40. But here are some odd things um, about the number 40. Some Russians believe that ghosts of the dead linger uh, at the site of their death for 40 days. Th- this is true. This is uh, what some uh, Russians believe. Uh, WD-40, that, <laughs> that, that, that wonderful, strange spray that fixes everything, stands for water displacement on the 40th try. That was the 40th try that the chemists uh, uh, actually, uh, they got it right on the 40th try. So, so that's wow. what WD-40 stands for. The word quarantine uh, comes from uh, the Italian uh, quattro. Uh, 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 quattro is four. Four people were quarantined during the bubonic plague for 40 days. And so um, the word quarantine comes from uh, the Italian uh, derivation for four and 40, which I thought was very interesting. One item that resonates with some news today in a strange way, um, the atomic number of zirconium, which is primarily used for nuclear applications, is 40. And that brings us to the discovery today of the great spy Litvinenko, who was deemed uh, to have been poisoned uh, with polonium-210 by Vladimir Putin. Um, And so uh, I just want to highlight that as a little news item um, that relates somewhat to the number 40. Litvinenko, as you know, and as our listeners know, was a a former uh, Russian spy who accused Putin of being a pedophile, among other things, and was poisoned um, by two uh, former KGB agents in London uh, with a high concentration of polonium-210, which is uh, used in nuclear reactors. and it actually creates an accelerated uh, form of cancer in the body, um, and you die um, a pretty brutal death. So, 40, uh, in a strange way, has brought us to our present-day news cycle. (laughs) I'm so glad that it ended on uh, a poisoned spy. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) As all good stories do. Yeah. <laughs> 40 days, 40 nights. 40 days, 40 nights. 40 days, 40 nights. 40 days, 40 nights. 40 days, naturally. Start all over again. Just 40 days, 40 nights. 
Well, speaking of Russia, and speaking of news, and speaking of the number 40, uh, Russia and the number 40 have made it back into the news as a bit of history. Um, Agafia Lykova uh, was recently airlifted out of the Russian wilderness, the taiga forest in Siberia, after being there uh, for 70 years. And what is remarkable about Agafia is that she was part of a family that was lost, essentially cut off from contact from the rest of the world for 40 years in, uh, in Siberia after having fled uh, civilization in the 1930s um, because they were part of an old sect of, uh, of Russian Orthodox believers known as the Old Believers. And these are people who were basically their existence as a, as a group dates back to Peter the Great. Uh, this was a group that was marginalized after he introduced reforms that 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 uh, required such things as men cutting their beards, and so this uh, this group, the old believers during uh, Stalin's Russia, were persecuted. They went into the forest, the the uh, the Lykova family, and basically lived like the real life wilderness family for forty years. They built a shack out of, uh, you know, out of rough-hewn logs. They suffered famine for, for many years on end. They had one year in which they were, uh, they basically lost all that they had planted, and they were a, they were a, they were growing some uh, crops. One year they lost everything but one single sprout. And they lived on pine nuts for an entire, win- uh, entire winter uh, and carefully guarding this one sprout that was all they uh, could count on for, uh, for future cultivation. And somehow they made it into the late 70s when a group of geologists who were basically prospecting for, for oil and we're flying through a uh, uh, through a canyon in, in in that part of Siberia, in a helicopter. They discovered what looked like furrows in a place where they thought there were no no there was no human civilization whatsoever. When the geologists found a place to land and they made their way to this spot of the woods, they came up to what this ramshackle hut, and out stepped a man with a very long beard, wearing rags, uh, who was barefoot. <laughs> And the, uh, the geologist who, who encountered this strange man thought he had just entered a fairy tale, and Rumpelstiltskin <laughs> just stepped out of the hut. <laughs> so he was invited into this hut, and inside were, was a family of five in the darkness. They were uh, uh, in their 30s, uh, and uh, two women who were crouching in the darkness, screaming, terrified. This family had nothing. They had been wearing rags for years on end. Miraculously, they had brought in a loom <laughs> back in the 30s. They brought that with them. And they had managed to uh, create hemp sackcloth, basically, and wear that for years on end. Their mother uh, had died uh, of starvation in the 60s, and still they stayed there. They had no knowledge whatsoever of World War II. They uh, didn't know about television. 
they suspected there were such things as satellites because they had seen things in the sky, uh, streaking across the sky. But that was pretty much all they knew. And the very sad thing is, is that very quickly after uh, establishing contact with the outside world, three of them uh, died within two years from exposure to uh, to viruses and pathogens. Bad they had con- no bad, bad conversation. <laughs> bad conversation. Yes. <laughs> well, apparently, apparently the 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 the, uh, the two women, the two sisters, uh, Agafia and I'm drawing a blank on the other woman's name. They had they spoke kind of their own language, N- their own N- Natalia, Natalia, their own uh, their own sing songy language. Uh, and if we're if we're going to correct you on stuff, John, actually the women are Lykova, the men are Lykov. It's a Lykov family. Lykova oh. is the uh, feminine feminine version of that. And I'm I'm no Russian speaker, but that appears oh, that's to be right. the case. Well, that's that's. It's a worthwhile correction because that's also the case like in, in Polish, too, I believe. Still, you know, they didn't leave. The father, Karp, <laughs> who wore a hat like Chico Marx's, by the way. Karp <laughs> <laughs> um, stayed, he stayed alive. And he lived until 1988, living in the same, uh, the same spot. And after he died, still, Agafia didn't leave until, I believe it was the 15th of this month, January 15th. Yep. And she finally was evacuated for, uh, uh, for medical reasons. She did have an emergency satellite phone, though. So I think she, she gradually came to terms with some pieces of technology. But she, never, uh, she, was never, she could never take anything that had a barcode on it um, <laughs> from anyone <laughs> because she believed it was the mark of the beast. <laughs> and, and, okay. <laughs> and... Uh, if you're if you're interested how far um, into Siberia they actually were, um, it is probably about uh, fifty to hundred miles away from Mongolia, way out in uh, the far east reach, reaches of uh, Russia. Wow! Not, not not a not a place for your lonely planet backpackers for the most part. <laughs> I couldn't help uh, while while listening to the story, John. I couldn't help but think of the. Japanese soldiers who had oh. surrendered in the 70s after having lived in caves and I'm wondering if they had had access to that loom if they uh, <laughs> wouldn't have traded those diapers that they were wearing for <laughs> so, so, something a little more um, stylish when yeah they would that. they would because the, the photographs you see of, of them is uh uh, the uh, Chico Marx hat. Did he say? Is that what you said? Uh, yeah, was, the Chico, uh, the Chico Marx. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the Soviet geologists gave him uh, gave him gifts of clothing, which they readily put on. <laughs> so I well, mean, I don't think they were Amish. Like, get away with your Satan clothes. And like, yeah, oh, yeah those clothes. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> those photos. There were no photos that I could find of them wearing the the rags that they made. Only the photos that, uh, of them wearing the clothes that they were given by the geologists. But the Chico Marx hat that Carp is wearing, and Carp, by the way, has this big long beard. What were they doing? What were these geologists doing with that hat <laughs> in 1979? <laughs> being, I, being I can't help but imagine for Soviet uh, Union, the, the, I suppose. What's that? <laughs> being damn stylish for the Soviet Union. I mean, come on. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's true. 1979, so. Uh, yeah, they, they might have thought Chico Marx was, you know, totally in style, right? So, what, wanna, so meanwhile, back in the States, when we were, like, wearing 
trucker hats, unironically. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> talking on our talking on our CBs, they, these guys would have been wearing Chico Marx hats. <laughs> well, maybe they thought Chico was related to Carl. You know. Oh, <laughs> I I hadn't thought of that. I haven't seen the photo of the last uh, uh, Japanese soldier to surrender wearing a diaper. Is this the? Oh, this isn't the guy who. Oh, okay. In the Philippines, actually, right? Yeah. In 19, to get his former commander out there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think you have it on the on the uh, on the nose, actually. Um, yeah, a uh, a uh, I think I believe a Japanese graduate student or something like that, like learned that there might be someone out there, and he went and and, yeah. and made contact with this guy, and he still didn't believe him, or he you know he said oh, it's my duty to stay there. So the guy, yeah, he literally got his old commanding officer who miraculously was still alive to come out there and you know, like go out with at you know a big group of journalists and tell them yeah the war's over <laughs> turn turn it in and uh, you know the philippine uh, government decided to look the other way that he had you know in fact killed several people <laughs> in the course <laughs> of the 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 30 years since uh, world war 2 was over but <laughs> whatever <laughs> Bygones would be bygones, right? <laughs> there were, I think, I, I believe there were a couple of others that that held out and actually allied themselves with the Malaysian communists and and fought with the communists into into the nineties. I'm just reading here. I, I, I looked up uh, Hiru Onoda is the last um, uh, Japanese soldier to surrender. He he did surrender in 1974, and. The guy who uh, who met him, this guy Norio Suzuki, was apparently traveling the world looking for, quote, Lieutenant Onoda, a panda, and the abominable snowman in that <laughs> order. <laughs> oh, God. I, I, got, I got a great ending for that because I looked up that. I'm looking at the same thing. I looked up that guy, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to read this to you, and I'm not, gonna, I'm not kidding at all. After finding Onada, Suzuki quickly found a wild panda, yay, <laughs> and claimed to have spotted a yeti from a distance by July 1975, hiking the Giri range of the Himalayas. He died in November 1986 in an avalanche while searching for the yeti. <laughs> wow. I, I guarantee he died searching for the yeti. It's amazing. So this guy would have been disappointed when, he, when he, all he found at first was just a Japanese soldier. Uh, <laughs> I won that. Oh, I'm you're not a snowman. <laughs> Give me 40 acres and I'll turn this brig around. It's the easiest way that I've found. Some guys can turn it on a dime or turn it right downtown. But I need 40 acres to turn this brig around. Okay, so I thought we'd start a short pub quiz. I'm going to give you guys a few historical events, and I want you to tell me which year, ending in the number 40, you think that event happened. Okay? This is the year that King Edward III of England was declared King of France. 1340. Oh, my goodness. Point goes to Ed. You didn't even have to think about that. No. Was that wait a minute. Are we calling out, or are you giving choices? <laughs> no, you you just yeah. yeah. <laughs> How about I, t- I I take answers from both of you and then I tell you what you're whether you're yeah right. yeah. I thought that's what you were going to do, but thanks for giving me the point. This is going swimmingly, <laughs> I've, John. I've broken my own rules. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, this this was the year that the English Long Parliament was summoned. 1640. I agree. You're yep, 1640. Right. You both get a point. <laughs> this is the year that British colonists reached New Zealand and founded Wellington. 1740. Uh, 1840. The answer is 1840. Which well, is surprisingly I, I, late, by the way. I, yeah, I that's just, that, that. Yeah, yeah. You know, to think that, that that New Zealand is that recent in its founding. Yeah. Well, I, I used to live in Wellington, so that was unfair. And oh, <laughs> okay. The year that the Battle of the Neva occurred, Russian Prince Alexander Nevsky defeats the Swedes. Fifteen forty. Alexander Nevsky. Uh, 1040? <laughs> uh, the answer is 1240. The next one. Emperor Antonius Augustus Pius and Marcus Aurelius Caesar become Roman consuls. 640? 1040? This is Emperor Antonius Augustus Pius and Marcus Aurelius Caesar. 240? <laughs> the answer is 140. 140. I'm, 140. 140. Oh, I was saying, did I, did I say 1040? I meant 140. Oh. <laughs> You're thinking about taxes already. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll do one more. And I, I'd already lost count of, of who's winning, so. <laughs> so whoever gets the I know who's say, losing, our, our listeners right now. <laughs> yeah, big time. Um, I'm going to do one last one, and whoever gets this one will actually be declared the winner. <laughs> Coronado captures Hawika, at this time known as part of Cibola, but fails to find the legendary gold. 1540. Mm. Tim? Well... Say, can I give the same answer? Yes, you can. I agree. You're both right. Yay, <laughs> you are joint winners of the pub quiz. <laughs> Hooray. You know, Coronado of the Cross of Coronado. Of the Cross of Coronado. As in that yes. belongs in a museum. In a museum, yes. <laughs> yeah, so, does this, so does this segment. Holiday <laughs> and 49. Like a ship out on the sea Praying for her each night That she would come back home to me Life and love and love is right I hope she come back home tonight So 40 years we've been on this earth, 1976. Let's just think about how much has changed since 1976, the year that's, uh, that we were born. When we were born, our families probably still had black and white TVs in the house. At least mine still did. When we were born, it had been about 68 years since the Chicago Cubs had won a World Series. Now it's been 108 years since the Cubs <laughs> won the World Series. But of all the things that have changed in my lifetime, you know, in my everyday life, 
I would argue the thing that has changed the most is not the television or the technology, but the food that we eat. Mm. And, you know, when I think about what I ate as a kid, what everybody I knew ate <laughs> back when I was a kid, and I compare it to now, I think this is the big, the, the big change that I think we are less conscious of, less conscious than other big things that are, are technological. Think about the lettuce, for example. When, when I was a kid, and I, you guys tell me if your household was any different, lettuce was flavorless iceberg lettuce. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was it. And now it's flavorless artisanal. Artisanal. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I, I, and I think that we could do a whole episode on food and the history of food and the changes in, in food uh, just over our lifetime. I mean, I have, I've often talked about how I, I still find balsamic vinegar to be <laughs> completely <Exotic>. ridiculous. <laughs> vinegar is supposed to be acidic. And uh, I, I don't know. I, I could go. I could go on and on about vinegar. But at some point, <laughs> it, it was. Please do. <laughs> it, it was. It was red wine vinegar, and it was olive oil. And then uh, extra virgin olive oil was introduced, which I have to say um, I do enjoy. And you definitely can tell the difference. But my mom, at some point put balsamic vinegar on the table and it was like this strange European delicacy and uh, it's become the staple now but I I, um, I do I think our tastes uh, have changed uh, dramatically the the whole artisanal and organic movement and things like balsamic vinegar and now, the variations of balsamic vinegar like yeah. cherry balsamic and other annoying variations and these little shops that pop up with different <laughs> <laughs> different types of vinegar. Vinegar is to my palate as Dickens is to Ed's uh, literary tastes. I hate it. I wish that it would perish. Uh, Dickens is to me the same way that balsamic vinegar is to me, which I love both of them. Even though they, they, they discuss the two of you, <laughs> yes, they do. I'd, but, I'd go with I'd go I'd go something uh, similar, John. That uh, beer has yeah. uh, think how much that's changed since 1976. In uh, 76, there was uh, only 44 breweries in the United States. So, can you imagine how many are in <clears throat> the New York metro area right now? Probably more than more than 44. Just the kind of beer you could get uh, has radically changed. I mean, those 44 breweries were, you know, it kind of reminds me of that Simpsons where you have the the Duff, the Duff Light and the Duff Dry, and then you look up and it's just one tube going into three spouts. But if you think think about... If you think about when The Simpsons started in 1989, that was still the world of... (laughs) Uh, no, that yeah, was still America absolutely. then. Yeah, um, I, I mean, it disgusts me to think of a world where that was all you had, and all these beers that I love just didn't exist. I still can't figure out why. How it ever got to that point? Europe went on creating great beers, and I would say in 1989 we had still had 80s teen screwball skiing 
beach comedies, which <laughs> we, did. we don't now. And come on, you know. I was going to say British beer, German beer. I mean, even there, I mean, that's where you, if you were, you know, kind of, you know, aspiring upper class or aspiring yuppie, that's what you drank. You drank a, a Heineken or something like that because it was different. Right now, I think Heineken's garbage. But oh, it's back garbage. then. But do you remember? No, it, it tastes different. Mm, it's, it, it smells of skunk. That's different than <laughs> smelling of urine. So, You know, coming out of, of World War II and the, and the massive manufacturing um, and marketing that came in the 50s, the uh, marketing of Americana and the mass yeah. marketing. People ate canned vegetables and people drank American beer and it was it was Fortress America. And what we did was best and it was ours and it was our brand. And I think culturally that took many, many decades to, to change. We're in the heyday of that. But if you look at it historically, I think really that's why. It's it's post World War II America producing you know sixty percent of of the world's steel and and you know uh, whatever the whatever we contributed to global GDP I think it was forty fifty percent or, or or whatever the number was astronomical I think that's why and our parents' generation took that note from their parents who drank Schaefer and Budweiser I mean my Schaefer, grandmother Charlotte. Wow. She drank Schaefer and Bud. I mean, that that was it. And when I grew up, that's what you saw in the house. And Good even Lord. wine. It was a, a bottle of Chianti in the basket with the nondescript name or or the car, big jug of Carlo Rossi. You know, now wine is, the palate has become so sophisticated. It's that old idea of globalization and, and our generation taking the note from our parents exploring new things and I think that's what happened when I was a little kid I remember my mom was out of town and my dad took us to a Japanese restaurant and that was considered <laughs> completely <laughs> foreign and adv and beyond adventurous to say that you were going to try seaweed, it was, com it was completely alien. And he tricked me into going. He said we were going to a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> and I thought I was excited. <laughs> it was a strange restaurant down a couple of stairs in the village. And it was uh, interesting decor. And it was very quiet. And, you know, they brought the menus over. And my dad ordered seaweed. And I almost had a fit. Uh, <laughs> as a little kid, I just couldn't believe it. And, and, and living in the village, there was one sushi place in the, in the entire village. It was on Sullivan Street, just next to Washington Square Park. And it was the only sushi restaurant in all of Greenwich Village. And only Japanese people ate there. It's, it's been an amazing uh, transition. My, my own food-related anecdote that just sort of illustrates how much things have changed is when I was 11 and we moved from Washington, D.C. to Geneva, Illinois, where, you know, Ed and I grew up. My first week of school, I had uh, sandwiches <laughs> made with Lender's bagels, you know, the kind that you'd buy in the freezer. You know, they were very common in all the supermarkets in, in Washington, D.C. Yeah. So that, that alone is, is weird enough that I was eating Lender's bagels. I mean, that's just enough of a, a time warp as it is. This is 1987. Nobody in my school, and this is at St. Peter's in, in Geneva, the Catholic school there, 
nobody in that school had ever seen a bagel before. And I think it was like my first lunch in my first day in that school. I might as well have been from the planet Mars because <laughs> wow. I was like the new kid from you know a different part of the country. I sit down, I open my lunch up, and there's a sandwich made with a bagel. And the kids at the table said, is that a donut? Are you eating a donut sandwich? <laughs> and I said, um, I said, it's no, it's a bagel. And uh, Joe Stashik yells at me, what the hell's a bagel? <laughs> <laughs> you eating a dog? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah, you eating a dog. Are you fat and you body, but Lordy, you are my meat. Well, well, let me ask you guys, just each individually, to wrap things up here. Uh, what, over the past 40 years, has been the historical event that had the most significance or, or meaning to you individually? I have to say, thinking about that question, it's, at first it's, it's a little hard to look through the, the, the scrim of, of 9-11 uh, it, it sort of colors everything, but uh, taking away the the uh, familiarity familiarity of that tragedy, which we all have our own uh, stories, and and living in New York at the time certainly, um, its its historical import I think is still unmeasured, and uh, it's too soon to tell. Uh, so if I compartmentalize that for a moment. Um, and I look at the scope of the last 40 years, I think of November of 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and the end of communism. Good evening, everyone. From the west side of the Berlin Wall at the Brandenburg Gate, I'm Tom Brokaw. The Brandenburg Gate, of course, is in East Berlin, and the sound that you hear and what you're seeing tonight, not hammers and sickles, but hammers and chisels as young people take down this wall bit by bit. Earlier this evening, the Communist Central Committee in East Berlin proposed an action program, including free elections and a democratic coalition government. Tonight, citizens from both Germanys are singing and dancing on the wall itself, reunited right on top of that harsh symbol of division. That was incredibly impactful to me because I was a child who was very aware of the potential for mutually assured destruction. And I felt tense about it. Um, my entire young, co uh, politically conscious life until that happened. And it is the only event that I can think of that our generation shares the same tension with our parents, who shared it in a sense with their parents, who shared it in a sense with their parents. If you think of our great-grandparents and, and the beginning of Leninism and the division of Berlin and, and the creation of the Iron Curtain and the proxy wars in Latin America, Vietnam, uh, and so forth. And our generation, you think of the concept of the, the arms race and mutually assured destruction it was, I think, a shared tension. It was uh, lifted like 
the Narnian winter, if I can <laughs> give a, 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 a C.S. Lewis reference, uh, in November of 1989, I don't think that you really understood the tension that you lived under until that happened. I felt a palpable change, a sea change in my feeling of, of, of personal safety and the safety of my family and the world. We're talking about a 70-year period, the longest in the history of the world in terms of a continuous war, albeit cold, it wasn't really. For me, that was the most impactful. I don't think anything has had a similar impact in my life in the last uh, 40 years. Ed, what about you? Obviously, you know, uh, 9-11 would be up there. But um, just for how an important event um, in which subsequent events kind of could have gone either way into directions that they went and directions that we have no idea now how they'd go, I would uh, I'd, I'd talk about Bush Gore in 2000. Because uh, God knows what would ha- have happened if uh, Gore was elected. We might still be in Afghanistan and, and Iraq. We might not have been. You know, it's kind of a butterfly effect. What would have, would have happened at that point? Decision 2000, the final chapter. Here is Tom Brokaw. Good evening. Tonight, 36 days after the presidential election, the bittersweet ritual of conceding. Vice President Al Gore about to address the nation, knowing that he will not move into this house on January 20th. His last hope for getting there ended last night a little more than two miles away at the U.S. Supreme Court, where in a five to four decision, the justices ruled that the latest recount of votes in Florida could not stand. While in Austin, Texas tonight, George W. Bush prepares his own speech to the nation, scheduled for one hour from now. Here is the Vice President of the United States. Just moments ago, I spoke with George W. Bush and congratulated him on becoming the 43rd president of the United States. And I promised him that I wouldn't call him back this time. I offered to meet with him as soon as possible so that we can start to heal the divisions of the campaign and the contest through which we've just passed. Thank you very much. Our country has been through a long and trying period with the outcome of the presidential election not finalized for longer than any of us could ever imagine. It was just so interesting and fun, that whole, uh, the, the whole uh, controversy that lasted we- days, then weeks, then months about who really had uh, won. I, and I was living in Chicago at the time, and uh, I, I always remember that uh, William Daly was talking about these butterfly ballots, are, are, that they're invalid, they're too confusing. And I'm like, what the f- are you talking about? I just voted on one in Chicago. <laughs> Mayor Richard Daly is your brother. That that's more of a, just an inflection point in history, and I think it uh, would go down as an extremely uh, important one and a really obvious one. If you look at the Berlin Wall as you know, uh, probably the the one of the best global things to happen during the last forty years, and and nine eleven is the worst. That one is more of a, it could go either way, depending on what your politics are and what kind of counterfactuals that uh, you uh, put out there. Um, well, going either either way. Could, I guess it could go, well, things were would have been crappy anyway, or, you know, things would have been a lot better. That's an interesting one. The 2000 election, and I mean, it was, it was really 
right down until the end of December, around Christmas mm-hmm. time, 2000, that that was going on. It seemed like every day it's it, you had the same thought, this can't really be still going on. Can it? <laughs> yeah. I think that the tone of American politics was poisoned at that point. <laughs> <laughs> and we are still living with the consequences of it. And uh, I think there's a there's a stark contrast between the atmosphere, the political atmosphere, pre-2000 and post-2000. I would bet money that when people are looking back on this election and kind of the vitriol, uh, <laughs> the, the tone of it, I, I will bet money that people will draw the line between you know, what came out of that election where the presidency was contested. I mean, it's just, it's still extraordinary to me. Yeah. It's, it still can't believe it happened in some ways. But You, you know, uh, Ed, I love this one because it shows how tenuous the democracy is. And I, one of the things I remember thinking was it's the first time I became consciously aware of, of the concept of whatever the reality is, whatever the facts are, the person uh, with the strongest posturing might simply win by sheer force of will. And I'm not taking sides on, on, uh, in either way, but I just remember Dick Cheney uh, mm-hmm. putting together a government in the midst of this and announcing staff and announcing yeah. appointments, and mm-hmm. it hadn't been decided. And I... And I I remember thinking the brilliance and the power of that strategy of simply willing it to be. And it was scary uh, as well uh, because it was undecided. Um, yeah, that's, that, that might have been the great test of, of uh, the oldest democracy. And to John's point, uh, we don't know if we passed. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, for myself, I, I have to choose Mikhail Gorbachev's uh, resignation. And that would have been, that is December 1991, uh, Christmas mm. Day. I think when the Berlin Wall fell, that was exciting for me as a kid. And, you know, but I, I, it wasn't a foregone conclusion for me that the Cold War was over. Mm-hmm. But when Gorbachev resigned, and that was the end of the Soviet Union, that was the first time in my life, maybe the only time in my life, where I felt that I was going from one epic into the other. Dear co-citizens, countrymen, due to the situation, with the formation of the Commonwealth Independent Governments, I must end my duty as President of USSR in making this decision due to principles. I always spoke for freedom, independence of the people, to the sovereignty of the republics. And I also spoke for the unity of our country and the wholeness of the, of the Union. Events flowed in a different way. The line for splintering of the country took over, with which I cannot agree. It was sort of like the, the unofficial end of the 21st century. <laughs> I had that sense even then. I don't know, it was extra special about that to me, looking back, is that Tim and I actually got to shake that man's hand 
Yeah. Uh, really? Six years later in England. Now, only one of us got a picture <laughs> with him. Or wait, were, were you guys delivering polonium? Or <laughs> No, it was, um, it was in Oxford at Blackwell's Bookshop. And yeah. Gorbachev had just put out his autobiography. And he and his wife, Raiza, were, were there. And uh, yeah, he was there signing books. And the, the line was out the door and down the block. And Tim, um, Tim actually got to go up there and get his book signed, but I got all the way in, and then I had to go to a tutorial. <laughs> and rather than, rather than you know, take this opportunity to meet a, a, one of the, the monumental figures of 20th century history, I decided to uh, be a good student and go to my my tutorial up at uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I I think I made a mistake, but. I did get to shake his hand on his way in, and uh, but Tim has some pretty hilarious photos of that meeting, <laughs> and, and and my interaction with him was also hilarious because I was er- early on the line. I was like the fifth person online, and they were allowing you to buy multiple books. So I had three <laughs> books and. I uh, shook his hand. I said, Mr. Gorbachev, uh, it's, it's very nice to meet you. I'd like you to sign three books. And he looked at me dumbfounded and he said, three, three. And with a smile <laughs> on his face. And I said, yes, isn't it nice to benefit from capitalism finally? <laughs> nice. He, he, yeah. didn't re- he didn't. He didn't speak English really, uh, so he kind of just smiled. Uh, his wife was there. She was kind of giving me the evil eye. The photo uh, that I have of his wife is she's just she's giving me a dirty look. Yeah, taking uh-huh. a picture. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that Hilarious. was yeah. That was something. And when I left, I don't know if you remember this, John. Uh, when I left the bookstore. There was someone from BBC Radio. Uh, oh yes, that's right. Who, who came out and and put the microphone in front of me? I wish I had. I I could find this somewhere. But um, and he said to me, he said, "Could you tell us how do you feel after having met uh, Mikhail Gorbachev?" And I said, "Well, I was very honored to shake the hand of the man who shook the hand of Ronald Reagan." <laughs> and uh, he was not too pleased. I'm sure it didn't make the uh, the cut for that that uh, show. Well, for for me, I remember thinking after having shaken his hand, I thought, you know, it really doesn't seem that long ago that I was a kid watching uh, pro wrestling when uh, <laughs> remember, Nikolai remember, Volkov? remember remember Nikolai Volkov? Yeah, yeah. yeah. would get phone calls from um, you know comrade president. <laughs> <laughs> if but he lost, know, they would hand the phone to him, and he would. <laughs> I do remember. He, he that. would look terrified as he's yelled at. That's awesome. <laughs> but I never, premier. I never felt a, a, a nefarious sense uh, from him. Even in Rocky Four, when they tried to make him look like you know the Soviet premier, the very oh, stern, I... he always looked kind of goofy to me. You know, he never had that. He he didn't have that that um, that gravitas as they say uh, too many times, and I'm sorry. I I, I remember being I remember being scared of him as a kid, 
And I, I remember watching him. Do you remember the uh, the summit with Reagan where they? Oh, they I thought showed... we were talking about Nikolai Volkov. Like, what are you talking about? No, I was definitely not scared of Nikolai Volkov. <laughs> yeah, remember when he teamed up with the Iron Sheik and <laughs> ran havoc over the WWF? I remember it's at school when I was a kid. We were all very fascinated by the Soviet Union because it seemed like here's a real life version of the. Galactic Empire from Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so, you know, naturally I was kind of scared of the the head of the uh, the Soviet Union. So I it was just nice to feel a sense of of as cheesy as this sounds, closure that, you know, I just shook this man's hand, a man who when I was young, I was afraid was gonna blow my country up. <laughs> yeah. Well you vanquished the, the devil. That yeah. day. <laughs> 40 days and 40 nights, the walls was I'll just close this with just uh, just a personal reflection here. For those of you who don't know us, or, or some of you may be aware, I've known both these guys independently for quite a long time. I've known Ed for 26 years, and I've known Tim for 20 years. But I think back to the first historical-related project that I ever worked on with Ed, and if I'm not mistaken, it was a... Um, and Ed, you may not remember this, but... It was a board game based on Charles the First, <laughs> and we printed out cards on a Print Shop on my Apple II C. <laughs> and looks we great, John. <laughs> and we made yeah, we 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 drew a um, we drew a map of England and we put a grid on this and we had a whole game uh, that we devised. And I remember as a kid thinking. We ought to sell this. <laughs> this is this is really good. And then I think I fast forward to to 1997, and long before we had any kind of concept of, we couldn't have even imagine what a podcast is. Uh, Tim and I would stay up late with a, a cassette recorder <laughs> in our house in England, doing voices of old uh, Boer War veterans into a cassette recorder. And I draw a straight line from both of those projects to this, uh, to this podcast. I see a pretty much direct continuation. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, anyway, um, here's to the next 40 years. I'm just going to raise my bottle of uh, Brooklyn Defender IPA. Wish you both a happy birthday and uh, cheers. Happy cheers. birthday to you, my friend. And Skull. to you, my friend. Absolutely. Well, Happy birthday to both of you. Uh, Tim, do you have a, uh, a, a recital that you want to end this podcast recording with? I do. While I was doing some, uh, some research uh, and just thinking about today and our recording and, and our theme, I came across the great theme song from the famous Harrow School in England, many famous alum from Harrow, among them Winston Churchill. And their theme song is a song called 40 Years On. And it's uh, the young Harrovians 
imagining what life will be like 40 years hence. Um, and I thought that that was certainly apropos for uh, what we're doing here today and reflecting on our last 40 years. So I'll just take a sampling uh, of the lyrics. 40 years on, when afar and asunder, parted are those who are singing today. When you look back and forgetfully wonder what you were like in your work and your play, then it may be there will often come o'er you glimpses of notes like the catch of a song. Visions of boyhood shall float them before you, echoes of dreamland shall bear them along. Follow up, follow up, follow up, till the field ring again and again with the tramp of the 22 men. Follow up, follow up. I leave you with that, gentlemen. I I uh, I can't top that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, Tim. Thanks, Tim. All right. Well, that about wraps up another episode of the Barstool Historian. For those of you who have not heard our past episodes, you can find them on barstoolhistorian.com. Uh, you can also connect with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash barstoolhistorian. We're also on Twitter at... BS historian, appropriately enough. All right. Have a great winter, everybody. Hopefully, you'll hear from us soon. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs> the balcony is closed. The balcony is closed. <laughs>Hi, this is John. Just one more thing here. This is a tape I recorded about 20 years ago in England. Let's see if you can tell who these two kids are. Where are you? Hey. Where, where were you? And now we present Tim DeMarco reading the medieval morality play Mankind, originally written in Middle English, now read as Frank Sinatra. Mercy, the very founder and beginner of all that first cuckoo creation. Among uh, was sinful wretches he oweth to be magnified. Pat for our, that for our bastard <laughs> cuckoo disobedience. <laughs> he hate none. What's that word? The big one. Indignus, indignation, 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 baby.